is Amy, and this is, for the record, The 70s, the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. Today, we discuss how 70s radio, specifically FM radio, created Queen, Boston, Journey, similar arena rock bands, and how it also created music rarely heard on the radio, punk rock. Before I do that, a quick thank you to the new listeners that have jumped on board and subscribed in the past couple of months. Thank you for that. If you are new, this is a disclaimer. If you're not new, this is a reminder. I am not here to shame anyone for the music that they like. There are podcasts that specifically exist to tell you that the music that you like is bad. And if that is what you are looking for, I will save you some time and tell you that will never happen here. Enjoy your music, whatever it is, with no judgment. If you remember anything about this particular episode, remember this. Rock music was alternative music before the mid-1970s. It was music that was formed by borrowing from black R&B or blues musicians, and then white kids played it and danced to it to annoy their parents. It was good music, too. But let's not forget that they all also were doing that because there's that thing that makes you want to rebel against your parents when you're a teenager. The very existence of rock music was rebellion. That is the idea that we need to keep firmly rooted in our minds as we look at what happened to rock music by the time the 1970s were over. Rock music became mainstream. If you were alive in the 1970s and old enough to buy your own music, did you listen to punk music? Or did that come to you later? Or are there just a couple of songs by The Clash that you think are cool and the rest is too loud or obnoxious or scary? If any of those things are true for you, if you were not a punk fan, you are in the majority. In fact, David Brackett, who is a professor at McGill University in Montreal, sums it up very well, I think. He wrote, Punk, a favorite subject of rock critics, is one of the few genres in the history of rock and roll in which the people who read about it may have outnumbered the number of people who heard it, at least during its initial heyday in the late 1970s. This makes sense, because 1970s punk was a New York product, and you really could not find it on the radio. You had to listen to it live somewhere or buy a record. That is why I want to start here with some interviews from 1977. The interview is going to uh, take place outside of the legendary club CBGB's in New York City. And the interviewer is talking to a couple of young women outside of that club. And they explain why they like punk. Here's what they said. It's like eating your weeds in the morning, you know, it's a drive, gets you going. Like Wheaties. Yeah, Wheaties get you going. If you don't eat your Wheaties, you know, when we come out of here, we'll be ready for a basketball game. And I don't play basketball. Are we all ready? You get your frustrations out here instead of on the street, you know. Yeah. You get your frustrations out listening to the music here instead of anywhere else, right? Why are you frustrated? Everyone is. Because we have mommies. Everyone is. What? Living in living anywhere, you're frustrated. It's a normal part of life. Why? 
Uh, well, you know, anything goes. Just living is a frustrating experience. You think it was always like that, or is that 70s? Uh, it's getting a little worse now, but uh, everybody's had their own frustrations. You know, always. Are you frustrated? Do you think the times are frustrating? Huh? I'm frustrated when I'm at work. Not now, I'm not. And uh, Yonkers, House of Ribs. What do you do? Huh? What do I do? I work with a calculator. Office. Very boring. I'm sure you don't want this for the interview. These two young women, anyway, liked the music because they thought it was a good way to release some frustration. They were bored. Noticed how the interviewer sounded like maybe she was trying to pin it on the 1970s as a particularly bad time. But the young woman who was directly asked that said, no, it's not the 70s. She, she gives us a glimpse into the difference between punk rock in New York, where it was born, and in the UK, where it was a much more political form of music. Now let's hear from members of the punk rock band, The Dead Boys. The Dead Boys were from Cleveland, but were very much part of the early punk rock scene in New York. Their debut album, called Young, Loud, and Snotty, is not at all ironic. It's actually quite literal. And it was released in 1977, uh, the year that these interviews were done. Okay, I'll be, I'll be serious for a second here. I got a piss, I'll be right. I'm, it's because, believe it or not, I am frustrated because I've never, ever been able to do anything else due to my own liking. And I like rock and roll more than anything in the world. What do you like about it? It's a feeling I get. It's like, it's like, what do you like about sex? It's what, it's impossible to explain. It's like an instinct, you know? You got it. What are the uh, major subjects of your song? Sex? Violence. Violence. Most, mostly violence. Some sex. Mostly frustration and boredom. What do you want to say about those? That we're frustrated and bored with both sex and violence. And mostly we're frustrated and bored with music. Is that why you're making the kind of music that you're making? Yeah, like, exactly. like Boston. Boston's an android band. And, uh, we have no well, choice. We have Queen, no choice but to break away. No we have no it's choice. It's made in the studio. You know? <clears> Listen. Like, it's all big business. It's 1977. It's rock and roll is dead. And there will be a few bands that keep it alive for a while. Maybe until like, uh, I don't know, you know, how long. You think rock and roll is dying? Yeah, of course. Did you hear what those guys said about Boston? And Queen, Boston is an android band. Queen and all those assholes, they ain't no good. It's all just made in the studio. It's big business. I am sure that some people will hear that and think, damn right. And others will think, what kind of blasphemy is this? How can you say that this ain't no good? A big noise playing in the street Gonna be a big man someday You got mud on your face You big disgrace Kicking your can all over the place Singing We will, we will rock you
Waving your banner all over the place We will, we will rock you Sing it! We will, we will rock you Buddy, you're an old man, poor man Pleading with your eyes, gonna make you zombie someday You got mud on your face, big disgrace Somebody better put your bag into your place We will, we will tell you that is queen doubtful that was queen's big hit of 1977 we will rock you which of course had this b-side i paid my dues time after time i've done my sentence but committed no crime and bad mistakes made a few I've had my shells and kicked in my Shout out to Local 216 my elementary school girls softball team that like to rock that song at Godfather's Pizza, celebrating our awesomeness on the softball field. Listen, uh, hey, that from News of the World, Queen's album News of the World, children of the 70s and early 80s, I hate to break this to you, and I'm one of you, so I feel you. I hate to break it to you, but it was not just punk rockers who did not like Queen, did not like Foreigner, didn't like Journey, didn't like Styx, didn't like Ario Speedwagon, and all of those other bands that have now been given the label of album-oriented rock or arena rock. I know. I was buying the music, too, and I still crank up Jukebox Hero. Remember now, no judgment. But the goal here is to understand how those bands created this space for punk and to do that we need to back it up and we need to look at 1970s radio you know country music and rock music have a lot in common one of those things is that they both have a fixation on authenticity real country or real rock that means who can be classified as country or rock who was allowed to play this music who was allowed to listen to it. What they also have in common is that 1970s radio helped to dictate what was going to be played. A lot of country fans and southern rock bands are disgusted with radio in the 1970s. You should check out episode three of this podcast in which I discuss southern rock and its evolution from the Allman Brothers 238 special in more detail. There was this brief window of time in the 1970s when FM radio played the most innovative, the freshest, some might argue the best music, especially rock music. 
AM radio was the pop radio band. That is where you went to hear the hits. FM was underground until it wasn't. AM radio stations were not going to play songs that were too long, that were too dark, that had too many instrumental breaks, not enough lyrics. Picture putting on an album like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, getting comfortable on the couch or your favorite chair, putting on the headphones or earbuds, and just letting the music flow. That was FM. What happened? Radio stopped being regional, for one thing. I am sure you've noticed that you can be in Omaha or Los Angeles or Atlanta or Seattle, and there is no difference between the radio stations. In fact, some radio stations do not even have DJs anymore. The playlists became standardized. In 1975, the maximum number of radio stations that one company could own was 14. Now, uh, your company could own a 1,000 radio stations, and some do, as long as they do not own a television and radio station in the same city. FM radio wanted to attract listeners, to attract advertisers, so executives wanted radio-friendly hits, songs of a specific length that were not too controversial, that a majority of people would like, and it would also be great if women liked it too. Those power ballads of the 80s, like Keep On Loving You, I Want to Know What Love Is, those are for you, ladies. I've got to take a little time A little time to think things over I need it when I'm older forth of that i am am i right that was the point in your uh, in the dance like we had dances at the ymca in the little town that i grew up in uh that's the point in the dance where you stopped dancing with your friends and then you kind of broke off and whoever you kind of liked like uh you know you were kind of doing your junior high version of dating or whatever that's when you would dance together i know i know that's how it worked So in 1977, when the Dead Boys, who we heard on that interview, complained about Boston being an android band, which in 1977 was not referring to a cell phone, but a robot, they meant, of course, that Boston was not real. I am sure that Gen Xers just felt their blood pressure raise with that comment. How could they say that about Boston? Well, Boston really was not a band when Epic Epic Records gave Tom Schultz a shot to show what he could do in 1975. Schultz was an MIT grad whose day job was being an engineer for Polaroid, which made film for those cameras that uh, gave us instant 
photographs in our hand. The rest of his time was spent playing in local bands and obsessing over the demo tapes that he made in his studio. Most record labels were not interested, but a rep from Epic Records heard more than a feeling and said, you need to come and audition for us live with a band. We want to hear you recreate this song. So he had to come up with a band, and he did. Boston's self-titled debut album was released in August 1976. It sold a million copies in the first 90 days of its release, and it has sold millions more since then. In fact, uh, Boston has sold 75 million records since they released that album in 1976. That was their first hit. It made it to number five on the Billboard Hot 100. I mean, 75 million people? They can't be wrong, can they? Well, here's the problem from the perspective of the people that didn't like the music. It is a heavily engineered and, to some, inauthentic piece of music. That, to them, means it lacks soul. There was a lot of engineering that went into that. Boston has not ever pretended that that is not the case. It was made for... Radio. Rolling Stone magazine listed this album in the all-time top 50 debut albums. They had it at number 41 out of 50. This is what Rolling Stone said about it. Tom Schultz, an MIT-educated Polaroid engineer, spent years in his basement studio devising the perfect sonic formula. He found it, which is why Boston has remained in constant radio rotation ever since. The guitars feel epic yet delicate and intimate in emo moments like Something About You and Peace of Mind. In more than a feeling, Schultz built a cathedral to the young adult male romantic yearning with every second scientifically crafted for maximum impact. So it's kind of like Lay's potato chips, a lot of thought goes into the engineering of Lay's potato chips. Millions of people like them so much that they want more and more Lay's potato chips. But does that make them good? Punk rock fans would say no. Still, this was a winning formula, and corporate radio of the 1970s loved it. So there it was. If you had a band, 
and you wanted to get on FM radio, which is what you needed to do to sell records, that's how you did it. So looking at you, Foreigner, Journey, REO Speedwagon. There was even a movie about this. In 1978, a movie that you have probably never heard of called FM was released in movie theaters. It is not a good movie. The plot is kind of interesting, though. DJs take over an FM radio station to protest the corporate takeover of radio. If the inner workings of a radio station uh, in the 70s and into the 80s are of interest to you, I would recommend checking out the reruns of the sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati instead. The best thing to come out of the movie FM was the... Oscar-winning song, FM, by Steely Dan. music by the way the girls don't seem to care tonight as long as the mood is right no static at all is there any more irony than steely dan fm radio gods studio album geniuses producing this perfectly smooth song that won an academy award and that was so great for fm radio it was not until i saw steely dan perform live in sometime in the 21st century, that I realized how engineered that music really was. But look at what snuck into the Hot 100 their first week of July in 1977, in the midst of all the album rock and the disco and the country-ish pop hits. At number 99, which was almost as high as this song would get, it would get a little bit higher than that. Sheena is a punk rocker, by the Ramones.
generally a fool's game to try to nail down the first song of any genre, like who was the first to do a thing. Um, the Velvet Underground generally gets credit for creating music that will lead us to punk. I mean, I'm really skipping some steps here by going to the Ramones because there were other bands in between that certainly had influence. The Velvet Underground did not sell many records, but that happens with bands that are ahead of their time. Patti Smith, Iggy Pop and the Stooges, the New York Dolls, the Sex Pistols, the Talking Heads. I mean, they are all just some of the artists that credit the Velvet Underground with influencing their sound. Let's talk about the New York Dolls for a second. They were formed in 1971, and they were very uh, theatrical. They had the glam rock vibe, kind of a trashier David Bowie. And while they were never nationally known, they had a very loyal following in New York. This is what music journalist Lisa Robinson wrote about the dolls. Uh, this is from her experience in August 1972. The New York Dolls, David Johansson, Johnny Thunders, Sylvain Sylvain, Billy Mercia, and Arthur Kane Jr. sit across from me at my apartment wearing platform wedgies, hacha green-trimmed sunglasses, sequined hot pants, transparent chiffon blouses, pink denim coveralls covered by a dragon applique apron. When we formed our band, we knew we had the best rock and roll band, said David. When the record companies come to see us, I think they get turned on. Their wives get drunk and start dancing, and they go crazy. But then they think about their kids, and that's what stops them. They start thinking about their kids. Reminder about what I said at the top of the show, that you know, rock and roll, its existence is rebellion. So the fact that the New York Dolls were rebellious is nothing new under the sun, but the type of rebellion was something that gave record executives pause in the early 1970s. Now, the Ramones were definitely not like the dolls in their look. Their look was very simple. Worn jeans, and jeans that were really worn and not bought to look that way. T-shirts, leather jackets. They made very simple three-chord songs that are kind of almost poppy, they, they seem, they're definitely hearkening back to maybe the 1950s and 60s in terms of that type of simplicity. They look the same. Um, they took the same last name, even though they are definitely not related, kind of like the Osmonds, the Jacksons. Simple lyrics. They played loud and fast, kind of like the late 60s, early 70s Detroit band, the MC5. Now, even though the lyrics to the song I just played, uh, Sheena is a punk rocker, are simple, they do seem to be giving us a message. Well, the kids are all hopped up and ready to go. They're ready to go now. They got their surfboards, and they're going to the discotheque a go-go. But she just couldn't stay. She had to break away. Well, New York City really has it all. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah signifying, hey, things are happening here in New York that are not happening out there in California, that the musical universe has shifted from Southern California to New York. 
historians and other academic types love to write about the Ramones, and they try to offer up an analysis of what made them so popular. I read through a lot of it, and it got to the point where it felt like the writers were trying to make the Ramones fit into some sort of paradigm that fit whatever their narrative was. This is what Tommy Ramone said. We used to sit around and listen to the radio and not hear anything like the stuff we like, so we decided to play it ourselves. I think we're seeing the birth of an exciting new scene here in New York. When asked, anyone in particular that you like? He said, anything, so long as it's entertaining. And I think that's it. It was entertaining to play, and it was entertaining to rock fans who were sick of what was being pushed at them on the radio. It was fresh. It was new. American punk rock was not a reaction to the 70s itself, the decade. It really was not political. It was a reaction to corporate radio. That's a product of the 70s. Corporations taking over radio stations and saying, this is your playlist, and giving the DJs zero authority to decide what was going to be played. There was not, we will get to a point where there will not be requests being taken by DJs because they didn't have the authority to do that. If American punk rock was not political, the same absolutely cannot be said for the punk rock that was being made in the UK. Punk rock will develop in New York City and then we'll kind of have this reverse British invasion thing where American punk rock bands will definitely influence the punk rock bands in the UK, but the messaging is going to be quite a bit different. This was angry music that was making a very clear and direct statement from the working class that they were sick of being treated like crap. Discrimination in the UK was based on social class, where you worked, what your accent said about you. Americans loved their white working class. So what was political about being the Ramones? I mean, nothing, really. The Ramones were not street-tough guys. I mean, these were guys from the Queens. They were middle-class guys. But the Sex Pistols, by their very nature of being working class, were political. Never mind the bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, is the only album the band ever made. It is considered by many to be one of the most important rock albums ever. Recording began in October 1976, and by the time it was released in October 1977, it was so famous that it debuted at number one in the UK. Granted, two of the most famous singles had already been released. The band had been goaded into swearing on live TV in England, and they got dropped by two record labels, and they were considered so offensive that they couldn't play in some locations. Even the name of the album is offensive. Bullocks, another word for balls. They definitely created a stir by releasing the single God Save the Queen a week before the celebration of the 25th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth taking the crown. I am pretty sure that everybody out there knows that God Save the Queen is the title of the British National Anthem. Okay, but 
The Sex Pistols version of God Save the Queen doesn't quite go like that. Sample of the lyrics. God Save the Queen, the fascist regime. They made you a moron, a potential H-bomb. God Save the Queen, she's not a human being, and there's no future, and England's dreaming. They released that the week before the Queen's 25th anniversary of taking the crown. Tim Summer, a music journalist who has also worked in the music industry, described it this way so that Americans can understand just what a problem that was. He wrote, This would roughly be the equivalent of when Green Day recently performed at the American Music Awards, briefly played MDC's Born to Die, and sang, No Trump, no KKK, no fascist USA, but change the American Music Awards to Trump's presidential inauguration. Summer also pointed out that there was probably no American equivalent to anarchy in the UK until NWA released Fuck the Police in 1988. It's important to, to understand that the way Johnny Rotten, who is the lead singer of the Sex Pistols and the Boys, played the song is just as important the lyrics. Now, I'm going to guess most Americans don't get the lyrics anyway. There are a lot of uh, British political references in here. So whether you understand the lyrics or not, just take note of his style of delivery. Here's Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols. the point the sex pistols were invited to perform on saturday night live on december 17 1977 however some of their criminal shenanigans made getting visas a challenge so they couldn't get into the united states elvis costello and the attractions were invited to take their place costello had released the album my aim is true in july of 1977 And it is definitely in the same vein as punk. Like all genres of music, punk will evolve, and Costello will be part of the new wave that takes hold in the early 1980s. But I think 1977 Elvis Costello was punk. 
He was supposed to play the song Less Than Zero, which is about a British politician that nobody in the United States knew, but the song is kind of good. So the band starts the song, and then Costello puts his hand up, says to stop. He said, there's no reason to play this song here. And instead, he launches into Radio Radio. Now, Radio Radio is a song about what we've been talking about here, uh, the corporate takeover of radio. Here's a sample of the lyrics. Radio is a sound salvation. Radio is cleaning up the nation. They say you better listen to the voice of reason, but they don't give you any choice because they think that it's treason. So you had better do as you are told. You better listen to the radio. I want to bite the hand that feeds me. I want to bite that hand so badly. I want to make them wish they'd never seen me. the creator of Saturday Night Live. Uh, supposedly, the whole time that Elvis Costello was singing this song, Lorne Michaels was giving him the finger. That's the last that we will see of Elvis Costello on Saturday Night Live for the next 12 years. The attraction of punk music in Great Britain is the aggressive, in-your-face style of pushing back on behalf of the working class. In the United States, it's primarily that the music was fresh. It was not heavily engineered in the studio. To use a 21st century term, punk felt authentic. It was also kind of scary to some people, though. That may have had something to do with the culture that surrounded it, uh, wearing the safety pins in, in your face, that kind of thing. It was jarring, which was also kind of the point. It was not, dare I say, radio-friendly. Yet, that's coming. As the 1970s become the 1980s, bands begin to figure out how to make the music they want and get it on the radio, which was still what you needed to do to sell records. 
the punk band that was able to break through and make political music that was not subscribing to what they believed to be a tired formula, and they were able to get on American radio, was The Clash. The Clash formed in 1976 and had put out two albums before they broke through in the United States with London Calling. It was 1979, and England was a mess. There was high unemployment. They had a lot of racial tension. Um, they were on the verge of a massive heroin epidemic. The Clash was also not seeing eye to eye with its record label, Epic, and was deeply in debt. The songs for London Calling were written in the home of uh, one of Mick Jones's grandparents, and it was literally recorded in a garage. The cover of London Calling, which I have posted on the uh, podcast website ftr70.com, is as iconic as the music. The smashing of the bass guitar on the stage at the Palladium in New York because the crowd was too quiet. The cover was then designed to look like the cover of Elvis Presley's debut album, and that takes some balls. To emulate the cover of Elvis Presley's debut is an announcement. This is new. This is revolutionary. There's new music and new rules. Rolling Stone magazine lists London Calling as number eight on the top five albums of all time, describing it this way. London Calling is 19 songs of apocalypse fueled by an unbending faith in rock and roll to beat back the darkness. Here is Train in Vain from London Calling. Train in Vain isn't. Train in Vain is kind of like uh, the gateway to punk because the rest of the album definitely is. Uh, the title track, London Calling, is much more angry than Train in Vain, but this is how The Clash got onto the radio in the U.S. Train in Vain made it to number 23 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the United States in 1980, and then a lot of Americans bought the album, London Calling, because they like Train in Vain and it exposes them to the punk. 
let's talk about nostalgia. We all feel nostalgic about the music of our childhoods. It's like the soundtrack, for better or worse, of our childhoods. And I am sure that there are some songs that can just transport you back to a time and to a place. Then when that music is criticized, we get sensitive about it. I kind of feel that way about Wings, Paul McCartney and Wings, and I wrote about that. You can read it on my website, ftr70.com. It's also on medium.com. I am a firm believer in loving your music, whatever it is. Most of us are not music critics and do not need to separate our nostalgia from our objective assessment of music. I am also a firm believer in music as a reflection of its times. And punk was that. So was Boston. So was Foreigner. Those bands are a reflection of what was happening in radio. And so were the Ramones. And so were the Dead Boys. And so was the Clash. It was a reaction to boredom. It was politics. It was a reaction to the homogenization of radio. Sometimes. Sometimes it was just for fun, too. And that's the great thing about music, is that it is big enough to encompass all of those things. That is it for this episode of For the Record of the 70s. If you like what you heard, leave us a nice review. Tell somebody. Subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, everyone.